Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. You should now be hearing the song Jump Steady Blues by Pine Top Smith. He is one of the early innovators of Boogie Woogie Piano. I think he was actually the first one to use the term Boogie Woogie in the name of a song. Uh, this song was recorded January 15th, 1929. And sadly, uh, he died from a gunshot wound in a fight that broke out in a Chicago dance hall exactly two months later in March 15th, 1929. He was 24 years old. No known photographs of him exist, and his grave is even unmarked. He's got only 11 known recordings. Nonetheless, I like the sound of it, and you are not forgotten here, Pine Top Smith. I think that's fun. I like to do that because it's now copyright-free music, so I can use it without fear of being sued and also i like uh, american music history so spencer welcome back to the podcast yeah right <laughs> welcome back matt thank you we were just talking about how the last one of these we had which was a little over a year ago like a year and two months ago yeah, or so about that that was the day your son first came home from the hospital that is correct that's correct so that was a nice little button on the end of our last episode. And in case anyone is concerned, he's doing great. And he's the cutest baby in the world. So cute, in fact, that he inspired another. Oh, yes, he did, I guess. Well, was was he a direct inspiration? I think he was a pretty direct inspiration. Oh, May, really? May and I had been talking about it anyway. But I think May's hanging out with, with RN and you and Taddy was the, like the push that like, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's jump in with both feet. And so I haven't announced it on the podcast yet. I'm, uh, I'm going to announce it now, which is I, I'm going to be a father in a few months. Congratulations, Spencer. What sage advice do you have to offer me? Cleaning diapers isn't that bad. It's not that bad. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of dropping the kid. Yeah, of course. Terrified always, all the time. And you got to hold it right. And you got to cradle the neck and all these things. Don't worry. But like this, this is terrifying for like the first day and then you get over it and her book finishing stages. Right. Yeah. We, I think we announced the book last time I was on. So now that I'm on again, we can announce that it is almost done. Almost done. Very close to being done. I'd say we're, we're 85, 90% complete. I think 90. Yeah. I think we'll definitely have it in May. We ought to have a whole episode on that. Yeah. We'll do another one when it's actually getting published. We'll do one to promote the book. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. All right. See, so I've already secured my invitation back. All, all right. right. No obligation on me to be good at this point. <laughs> None at all. So you had this paper on induction, and you were telling me over beer the other day that it was a shame that it like, hadn't gotten the attention it deserved. And I thought, you know what? Let's do one on the problem of induction. All right. Yeah. So we'll get to my paper in, in a little bit, but yeah, I admit... I was a little bit disappointed on this one. I think it solves a big problem, a problem that 
I'm sure lots of people are exposed to in their philosophy 101 class. So you'd think that somebody solving a problem in a philosophy 101 class would be a big deal. Or if they haven't solved it, someone will at least explain to me why. But the paper has not been noticed at all. So I'm here on the podcast to promote it a little bit. But before we get into exactly what I say, let's talk about the problem of induction. So it seems like there are a lot of problems in philosophy that go back to antiquity, but this doesn't seem to be one of them, right? Yeah, not to my knowledge. I mean, I'm sure that there's some monk in the 12th century who had some idea about this or something like that. But the the discussions these days all go back to one guy in particular, and that's David Hume's um, famous discussion of this problem, both in book one of the treaties and in his uh, first inquiry. And Al-Ghazali in Islamic philosophy said some very similar things. You know, I did uh, listen to the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast on Al-Ghazali, so I'm sure that Peter Adamson mentioned it there. I'm sure that Hume wasn't the first to notice it, right? Al-Ghazali noticed it too. Cool. Al-Ghazali's a great philosopher. But yeah, when people talk about it these days, it always goes back to Hume. Say what you mean by induction. Right. So what is induction? Induction is a kind of reasoning. We can think of reasoning as just any sort of mental process, which is a succession of ideas. I'm thinking about one thing, then I'm thinking about another thing, then I'm thinking about a third thing. So sometimes these are more or less random, right? I'm thinking about ice cream, now I'm thinking about cookies. In my succession of ideas, sometimes I arrive at ideas on the basis of earlier ideas, where the earlier ideas justify, in some sense, the later ideas. So that's what reasoning is. Let's say that that's reasoning. Reasoning is when we have some ideas that come after some other ideas. And the ideas that come later are based on and justified by the ideas that come. So once we have that broad conception of reasoning down, then we can make a distinction within different kinds of reasoning. Uh, one kind of reasoning is deductive reasoning. That's the math and logic stuff. But the common idea about deductive reasoning is that deductive reasoning is reasoning where the premises entail the conclusion, where if the premises are true, then the conclusion has to be true. And that's just how we define validity. That's just how we define validity. And so then a deductive argument would be a valid argument. And then an inductive argument is any reasoning which is not deductive but which is still good reasoning. We think that not all reasoning is deductive. There seems like there can be good reasoning, which is not deductive. So this question then is what characterizes good non-deductive reasoning. So this is a very broad understanding of what inductive reasoning consists in. Inductive reasoning is just reasoning that is not deductive. I think it should be defined more narrowly than that. I like Purse's way of analyzing arguments in, in deductive, abductive, which is just inference to an explanation, not inference to the best explanation, just inference to an explanation. Right. And then inductive as the three kinds of reasoning. And then you can combine those and then you get arguments from analogy and other things. But those are the three basic types. So all, all of this is going to work just fine for what you'll say about Hume. But what I think he would say it's it's reasoning like from a sample to a broader class. Well, so 
There's this trilemma. We've got three ways of knowing. One is by direct perception. That's not reasoning at all. The second way is deductive reasoning. And then the third way is inductive reasoning. And this is supposed to be uh, exhaustive. So we've got the non-reasoning thing, which is perception, and then reasoning, which comes in two kinds, which is the, the deductive and the inductive. Hume didn't use these terms. He didn't say deductive versus inductive. And in fact, the way that I defined deductive is a very modern way of defining deductive inference. The way that Hume defines deductive inference is based on the principle of non-contradiction, right? To say that any idea where it would imply a contradiction to think that this is true, we can then know that it's false. And so its opposite is true. So another way of saying that is if it would imply a contradiction to think that a claim is false, then we can know that it is true. And that's deductive reasoning for Hume, which is different from the modern definition of deductive reasoning as proceeding from valid inference but we get that definition of valid inference from Fregean logic and Hume is, is pre frega So it's, I think, a pretty easy, most contemporary discussions like use the, the Fregean uh, conception and divide things up that way. But, you know, it's important to recognize when you're doing the uh, history of philosophy that they didn't have the exact same conceptual framework that we did. In particular, what's known as classical logic we say talk, talk about classical logic, people think that goes back to ancient Greece. But no, Frege came up with that about 150 years ago, Frege and Russell. So classical logic was actually very modern logic. And Hume was working in a, a slightly different logical framework. Now, like you said, it probably doesn't make too big of a difference, but it also kind of does. Maybe I can sharpen this up a little bit by talking about your distinction from purse, right? You said that that purse has a distinction between deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, which is sort of like noticing a pattern and continuing the pattern or noticing a pattern and then generalizing. So if you take like a lot of the deductive fallacies, mm-hmm. like assuming the consequent, right, or denying the antecedent, those are, he would say, abductively valid. He, he uses that validity for induction and abduction as well as deduction. But if you don't want to go along with him on that, you could say they're they're cogent or they're good. An abduction would be reasoning to the possibility. Mm-hmm. Like I turn my keys and the engine doesn't start and I think the battery's dead. Well, you know, that like I don't know that. If the battery were dead, this would be the result. And so I've reasoned to like a possibility. Right. And then I could test it. Right. So it's not even reasoning to the best explanation, just to an explanation. So that's what abduction is. Mm-hmm. And then induction is, you know, looking at some sample and then generalizing to what's not observed. Right. Yeah. So well, let's get into the stuff about causation because you, you, you're you kind of bringing it up. Itself. So here's how Hume thinks about things. So I presented this trilemma, but Hume gets into a little bit more detail about the, the trilemma. There's knowledge that we have by perception, although Hume under the influence of Barclay, thinks that we don't perceive the external world. All we're perceiving is our sensible qualities, our sense experiences. So perception, which is perception of our mental states, of our qualia. Then there's deductive reasoning, which proceeds on the principle of non-contradiction. And then there is inductive reasoning. And this is reasoning concerning matters of fact. 
because when it comes to deductive reasoning, the things that imply a contradiction to think that it would be false, that's math and geometry. But for reasoning about matters of fact, Hume says all reasoning concerning matters of fact is based on the relation of cause and effect. It's by means of this relation alone that we're able to move beyond the evidence of our senses. Uh, that's almost a direct quote. So all of our reasoning is based on cause and effect. So Hume's general model for how reasoning works is he says, from a, a pattern in our experiences, we infer a sort of causal regularity. And then we assume that the causal regularities are invariant with respect to time and place. So any causal regularity that we observe also will hold in instances that we have not observed. And we can infer how things will be in those unobserved instances. So it's a sort of reasoning that makes a detour through causal reasoning. All reasoning concerning matters of fact is essentially causal reasoning. Now, this gives Hume two things to worry about. One thing is about causation. Hume is very famously uh, a skeptic about causation. Although not really a skeptic about causation, in the end, he, he ends up saying that there are causal relations. He just says that they're in the mind. Well, how do we know about cause and effect? It's based on the assumption that things have causal powers that give rise to our experiences. Well, how do we know about causal powers? What could our concept of causal powers be? How could we have knowledge of causal powers? That's one class of concerns. And then he says, let's set that aside. And I'll grant for the moment that we can have knowledge of causal powers. If I grant for the moment that we can have knowledge of causal powers, this raises a second question, which is, how do I know that the causal powers that I observe now here also hold in other instances? So here's a sort of example that Hume would give, that Hume in fact gives, the heat and flame. I see the flame, I feel the heat. And whenever I see the flame, if I get close enough, I'm able to feel the heat. So I infer on this basis that the heat is caused by the flame. Hume's worried about how that could happen. How can we know that uh, there's this thing, this flame, which has these causal powers of heat, but set that aside and say, okay, and assume for the sake of argument that I can know that heat has the causal powers to, sorry, the flame has the causal powers to cause the heat. What about the next flame, though? How can I know that the next flame that I encounter will also feel hot? Well, I seem to be making an assumption here which is that there's a, a sort of general regularity in the course of nature. Instances of which I have had no experience will resemble instances of which I have had experience and that the course of nature continues always necessarily the same. So if all the flames that I've encountered in the past have felt hot, how do I know that the next flame will feel hot? And this then is his trial and art. Can I know that the next flame will feel hot on the basis of perception? Well, no. The question is about how we can have knowledge of unobserved instances, and I can't have knowledge of unobserved instances by observation. By definition, I haven't observed them yet. Next possibility, by deduction. Is there a contradiction implied by thinking that it is false that the next flame will not be hot? And Hume again says... No, there's no contradiction implied by that. We can imagine that the next flame will not be hot, right? We can imagine a, a cold flame, cold fire, et 
seems very weird to imagine, but we can imagine it. That's the sort of thing you can find in like a fantasy book. The wizard conjures a, a cold fire. You read that, you go, oh, cool, right? We can imagine it. Of course, we don't actually expect that. It would be, you know, hugely, hugely shocking if we ever did encounter a cold fire. We think that something, you're going crazy, something's going wrong. But it is coherent to imagine. Actually, if you read an article in the New York Times or Scientific American or wherever that said scientists in some lab, physicists have been working and they, they figured out how to create a cold flame, that wouldn't shock me. That wouldn't shock you? No. I mean, compared to other things physicists have done, I mean, detecting gravitational waves and such, right. I would think, I would think, wow, that's surprising. Then I guess you don't like Hume's argument for miracles, right? Because his famous argument on miracles is basically just the opposite of what you just said right there. You're talking about reading the science section of the New York Times. Hume takes on an even greater authority than that, the Bible. It no, that, not greater than the New York Times. You no, know, believe it or not. It says that even if in, in the Bible you read that water turns into wine, you should think that the Bible is lying to you, or not lying exactly, right? And there's no malicious intent. But clearly it's getting something wrong. Because we know from our experience that water doesn't turn into to wine. But we get an expectation then that things will continue in the way that we've experienced. And it would be shocking to think that they don't continue in that way. But it is still conceivable that they could continue in that way. And because it's conceivable that they could, there could be a difference in the way the future is. Then we can't know by deductive reasoning that the future will resemble the past, that unobserved instances will resemble observed instances. So then this brings us to the third possibility, that we can know that the the future will resemble the past by inductive reasoning. And Hume says something like that a theory cannot be founded on itself or that a claim cannot be founded on itself is perhaps the only thing we can be certain of in this whole investigation. So it's circular. So we can't know about we can't know that the future resemble the past by inductive reasoning. We can't know that the future resemble the past by deductive reasoning, uh, because there's no contradiction involved in assuming and in, in imagining that the future does not resemble the past. And of course, we can't see the future, at least not yet. So none of the three ways of knowing tells us that the future will resemble the past, that unobserved instances will resemble observed instances. So big skeptical problem. So even if we grant that things have causal powers now, that the flame now has the causal power to create heat. We have no basis for thinking that the next flame will cause an experience of heat in us. Right. Okay. Two clarifying remarks and then a question. So clarifying remark number one, this generalizes to other discussions of skepticism. We're not just saying that you don't know it with 100% certainty, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is a mistake a lot of people make when they discuss skepticism. Like even some philosophers think that the issue is setting the bar for certainty really high. And that can be a problem. But the skepticism that really bites is skepticism that says, no, you have no justification whatsoever for believing in induction or believing in other minds or, or what have you. Now, Descartes' evil demon argument, he sets it up so that he says he's only interested in, can I know for sure? But the really worrying skeptical argument is, 
Do I have any reason whatsoever to accept the external world hypothesis over the evil demon hypothesis? That's the one that really bites. Right. So, so that's what we're worried about. Like, how do we get any knowledge whatsoever? Not how can we be completely sure? Because, yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, sure, we can't be completely sure. So what? We, we go along with that. The other sort of clarifying remark is you might try to pack some stuff into just concepts to try to get around this. Like suppose you just defined fire as that which is always hot or something like that. Well, then you know the next instance of fire is going to be hot because it's been defined that way. But then the question would just be, well, you could find something like fire, fire asterisks, that is cold. How do you know that there is fire? How do you know that there's fire? How do you know that there is fire? Yeah, there you go. Right? If fire is defined as the thing which is guaranteed to be hot the next time, well, maybe there's no fire. Maybe there's nothing that is guaranteed to be hot the next time. Right? That's the same skeptical concern. Just put in different terms because they're playing with the definitions. Right. Right. So now here's my question about this. So I wonder how this is different than another really famous skeptical argument. Doubtless you're familiar with the, the skeptics web argument from Sextus Empiricus. Yes. So I'll just go over that in case anybody isn't familiar with it. Basically that says, think of any belief you like that's justified. It can either be like self-justifying or it's justified by something else. So suppose it's self-justifying. Well, that's that's sort of mysterious. Like, why is this foundational and not something else? It seems kind of arbitrary. But if something's justified by appeal to something else, then, well, does it come back to the same proposition and then it's it's a circular thing? Or does it just keep going and it's an infinite regress? None of these options really seem satisfactory. And yet these seem to logically exhaust the options. So the reason I'm bringing this up is why is this argument from Hume, not just a version of this, like, isn't he saying like, okay, well, let's look at induction. It can't be justified by itself and it can't be justified by anything else. It's, it's a very similar kind of argument. Interesting thought. These are not generally categorized as the, the same sort of argument. I guess there are some similarities here, right? So both of these arguments, both the which the skeptical web, skeptics web, yes, I think it's more commonly known as the regress. That's how that's how I think about it. That's how okay, it. but what whatever, right? Both the regress argument and Hume's problem of, of induction both have a sort of uh, ban on circular reasoning, and that's an important part of both of these arguments, right? When it comes to the regress argument, one thing you could say is, I know some basic foundational belief on the basis of itself. Or you could say that really there's no chain. It really is more of a web, right? P is justified by Q, Q is justified by R, R is justified by S, S is justified by T, and T is justified by P. And in fact, all these things justify each other because they all fit together. This is the coherentist solution yeah. to the regress argument. And then the objection to that, the classical objection to that is, uh, well, you're just making a bigger circle. Right, and that's still bad because circular reasoning is bad. So both the Humean argument and the regress argument include, at a crucial point, a ban on circular reasoning, which seems reasonable. 
But this is a place where both arguments have been attacked to say that circular reasoning is fine. And actually, this is a nice way to to segue into the nuts and bolts of, of Hume's argument. Because in what sense is Hume talking about circular reasoning? So Hume makes this allegation, circular reasoning. But in what sense is justifying induction by induction circular? Yeah, so let me see if I know where you're going with this. When I think of circular reasoning, I think a proposition that is supported by that self-same proposition. Yes. But that's not what's going on here. It's like a method that is supported by a, a method or something like that. Something like that, right? So let's compare, for the sake of, of contrast, the regress argument to Hume's argument and the sorts of circular reason that's supposed to be involved there. One way of solving the regress is to say that there is a literally self-justifying proposition. P is justified by P. My belief in P is justified by my belief in P. Another way to do it is the coherent disposition. P is justified by Q, Q by R, R by S, S by T, and then T by P, right? So we go in a, in a loop, right? In both of these cases, we've got P ultimately justifying itself. Or not justified by anything. Well, that would be a different. Yeah, right? okay. So th- there's different ways of ending the regress, right? Right. One way is to say that we end up with a foundational belief, which is not justified by anything. Another one is to say that we end up with a foundational belief, which is justified by itself. Another way is to say that we end up with a foundational belief, which is justified by something that is not a belief, something other than a belief. I think that's the way to go. Yeah. I mean, that's the consensus view, although there are problems with it. But that's the most common answer to the to the regress argument, at least these days. That or coherentism, some version of coherent. So. So anyways, with with either the P justifies P or P justifies Q, justifies R, justifies S, justifies T, justifies P, right? We have a, a sort of literal loop in our reasoning, right? We've got our, our succession of ideas. Reasoning is a succession of ideas. And one idea in the chain is justified by a later idea in the chain. And that later idea in the chain is justified by the earlier idea in the chain. We're literally having a circular reason. To many people, that seems quite bad. At least it's not an argument, right? So when G.D. Moore gives his famous proof of an external world, he then goes on to try to prove that his proof is good. And he gives a number of adequacy conditions. Here's what makes for a good proof. And one of Moore's adequacy conditions for a good proof is that the premises have to be different from the conclusion. And his reason for putting that in as a condition is that if you don't have premises that are different from the conclusion, it's not an argument. It's just restatement. P, therefore P, therefore P. You haven't taken me anywhere. Yeah, right? You're just, and it's a record skip on P. So one of the things that people notice then is this circularity, it's a different sort of circularity. So we've got, we're doing our inductive reasoning, all right? And we'll use a more modern conception of what inductive reasoning consists of. Inductive reasoning is when we've got an argument, which has got some premise or set of premises, for sake of simplicity, we'll say it's a single premise, P, and then a conclusion where P is supposed to support C, it's supposed to make it rational to believe C, justify C, even though P does not entail C. So we infer C, our conclusion, on the basis of P. This is not circular, right? We're inferring C on the basis of P. Why think that this is circular? Well, because If we want to take our inductive argument and transform it into a deductive argument, we would need to add a premise. This premise is if P then C. And 
So if we add our premise, if P then C, that will make our argument a deductive argument, just a simple modus ponens. P, if P then C, therefore C. So we make it a deductive argument. We have if P then C, and now we need some reason to believe if P. And it seems like our reason for believing if P then C comes from the conclusion of our argument that C is true. But now we're going in a circle. We're justifying one of the premises of the argument, if P then C, on the basis of the conclusion. And that looks like this sort of proper logical circularity. So that's one way you can flesh out the objection. But it's a bad way to flesh out the objection. Because what this way of doing things is assuming is that I am trying to turn my inductive argument into a deductive argument. But I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to make an inductive argument. Right. There are people who understand induction this way still. Like right. Nicholas Rescher, I, I call them enthymeme theorists because they take every inductive argument to have this implicit premise that makes it a deductive argument. Right. We can come back to that in a second. But, you know, one standard thing that's said here is we're not trying to do that. Right. It's, it is just an inductive argument. But still, maybe a point in the enthymeme theorists' sort of reasoning is that, well, this reasoning presupposes if P then C. This reasoning from our premise P to our conclusion C sort of depends on a background assumption, if P then C, right? We've got our premise P and then our conclusion C, and P is going to support C only if they're both true, right? I mean, that's what we want. We want reasoning where they're both true, right? Where a truth takes us to a truth. So if we're going to accept uh, both our premise and our conclusion, then we must be tacitly somewhere along the way accepting if P then C. That's where the circularity comes in. Even if we don't understand this as an enthymeme, right, where it is literally one of the premises of the argument, at least the reasoning process that we engage in presupposes the truth of a certain claim. It presupposes, as Hume put it, that instances of which we've had no experience will resemble instances of which we had had experience and that the course of nature continues always necessarily the same. Our inductive reasoning doesn't contain that as a premise, but it does presuppose that. To see if I'm following here, induction presupposes something that is outside of itself in some sense, whereas deductive reasoning does not. Well, so now let's get into get into deduction. Okay. Right? Because deduction does the same thing. Oh. Exactly the same thing. Right? So in deduction, we've got our premise P and our conclusion C. Now we'll, we'll stipulate that P does entail C, right? So we can infer C on the basis of P. Why? C and P after all are different, right? We're not just restating the same premise, right? We're not doing direct circular reasoning. Direct circular reasoning, that's bad, but deductive reasoning, that's good. That's the paradigm of good reasoning. That's why the enthymine theorists want to turn everything into deductive reasoning, because that's the best way to do it always. Well, okay, so then we need to sort of add in, right, some linking thing to get us from the premise to the uh, conclusion. This is this is the Lewis Carroll story. Right. So we're going to get into a couple problems here. There's the Lewis Carroll story. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is the famous paper by Lewis Carroll. Yes, that Lewis Carroll, the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland, what the tortoise said to Achilles, where the tortoise is making the sort of argument that I made right there. Which is, if you're going to say that there's a presupposition in our reasoning, then we need to include 
a statement of what that presupposition is as a premise. And then once we've included it as a premise, then we now have two premises and a conclusion. So we're now reasoning from two premises to our conclusion. So then we can ask the same question, right? What does that reasoning presuppose? What is it about these premises that takes us to the conclusion? Well, now we need a, a third claim, right? So we put that in our premises as well. And now we have three premises and a conclusion, and we need to know what takes us from the premises to the conclusion, and so on and so on and so on infinitely. And in this way, the, the tortoise absolutely flummoxes Achilles. The upshot of this is that there's a difference between inference rules and premises. There's a difference between inference rules and premises, and it's just a mistake to try to think of inference rules as premises. And this is what the enthymeme theorist is trying to do. He's trying to think of the inference rule as a premise to turn it into deductive reasoning. Right, right. Right. But you shouldn't do that. Agreed. Right. Because you could do the same thing to deductive reasoning. Do the same thing to deductive reasoning. Right. So you need to have a conceptual distinction between your inference rule and the premises of your argument. If you don't have that conceptual distinction, you run into the tortoise and Achilles problem. So now let's think about deductive reasoning again. Deductive reasoning is reasoning that takes us from our premise to our conclusion, and there's an entailment there. Now, there is a sort of presupposition that goes on as well of a validity of an instance rule. Now, we're not required to justify that as one of our premises, but you could still wonder, how does that work? What makes arguments like these deductively valid? And in fact, logicians do talk about this, right? This is a big topic in, in metalogic, right? And what do they do? They offer proofs. They offer proofs of the soundness of different sorts of inference schemes. And these proofs are perfectly good, perfectly deductively valid proofs in metalogic. But of course, now you see the problem. We're giving a deductively valid proof deductively valid arguments are good. This is precisely the deductive counterpart to what Hume said we're not supposed to do when it comes to induction. Right. So when this started to get realized in the 1940s, people started to take a second look at this idea that the circular reasoning involved in induction is bad. And say, well, what makes it bad exactly? It's not that this principle of induction Right, that instances if we had no experience will resemble instances of which we have had experience. That is not in our premises. That is maybe a way of characterizing the inference rule, but so what? Right? Inference rules aren't premises. That's the lesson we learned from Lewis Carroll. We might say that there's something fishy about relying on an inference rule which presupposes some claim which can only itself be justified by application of that inference rule. But if we think that there's something fishy about that, then deduction is equally fishy. So this could give you a kind of partners of innocence reply to Hume. You could say, well, look, you say that induction is suspicious, but obviously we can trust deductive reasoning. Yes. So if the same problems apply to deductive reasoning, well, then a problem for all is a problem for none. Now, of course, he would push other skeptical arguments, but could this at least diffuse the concern that induction is especially vulnerable? Yes. So we have Max Black in the 1940s making this exact argument, right? Induction is fine. 
We also have later thinkers in the 80s and 90s, people like uh, William Alston and Jim Van Cleve. Shout out to JBC. He was on my committee at USC. Um, saying that this sort of circularity that we're talking about here, this is rule circularity. We've been talking uh, so far about two different kinds of circularity, right? There's a sort of strict logical circularity where the premise is support for itself. That's premise circularity. And then there's another kind of circularity. And the other kind of circularity is the sort of thing we're describing now, where the inference step of our argument, which is different from a premise, if you don't say that, then you get the Lewis Carroll problem. The inference step of the argument will be valid only if the conclusion of the argument is true. So the justification for the inference step presupposes the truth of the conclusion if we want to try to justify the inference step, right? That's called rule circularity. And the idea from Alston and Van Cleve is that rule circularity is okay. Premise circularity is bad, but rule circularity is okay. Rule circularity has to be okay, because if rule circularity is bad, then we're skeptics about absolutely everything. Every sort of reasoning that we do presupposes the reliability of the reasoning that we're using, right? Every single kind of reasoning is rule circular, because we got our premise, we got our conclusion, we infer the conclusion on the basis of the premise. No matter how we characterize that step, we are presupposing that that's a good step when we're making that step. How can we support that presupposition? Well, it would seem to have to involve the fact that we got it right when we were making that inference. So justifying the inference step seems to presuppose that we got it right. And if that's bad, then no inference steps are good. And we shouldn't be universal skeptics, so rule circularity is okay. Here's where we're at then. Premise circularity, almost certainly bad. Rule circularity... Many people think that it's good. I'm one of them. I think that uh, rule circularity is just fine. But as people were starting to warm up to this idea of circular justifications, uh, induction of, of rule circularity, uh, along comes the counter-induction parody. And people who are familiar with this have probably been waiting for us to talk about uh, counter-induction or crazy induction or revolutionary induction, right? It goes by a couple different names. I call it counter-induction. So here's how the counter-induction parody. The counterinduction parody says that if these sorts of circular justifications are okay, then there's a problem. And the problem is that we can justify counterinduction, counterinductively. We can give a rule circular justification of counterinduction. And that's bad because counterinduction is crazy. Now, what's counterinduction? Counterinduction is the method of reasoning which says that the future will not be like the past, that instances that we have not experienced will not be like instances that we have experienced, and that the course of nature does not continue always the same. So the counter-inductivist then says we could reason in accordance with counter-induction. Just to be clear what you're saying, the very fact that the sun has you know risen every 24-hour period for as long as anyone's ever been alive to report it, that is reason to think that it won't do that in the future. Exactly. Yeah, so this is the thing. My experience and the experience that I remember of uh, my colleagues at the University of Colorado was you give this 
kind of argument to undergraduates and they hate it. So they're like, no, like that obviously counterinduction is insane. Sort of things that it seems difficult to motivate for even to get people to take this seriously as an objection. Right. Well, the reason why so many people do take it seriously as an objection, although they shouldn't, and we'll get to why in a minute. The reason why they do take it seriously is because it can supposedly be justified counterinductively. So what's the idea behind an inductive justification of induction? Broadly, the idea is supposed to be that we should reason inductively because it's always worked in the past. The fact that inductive reasoning has worked well in the past gives us excellent inductive reasoning to think that it's going to work in the future. This principle of induction that the future will resemble the past can be supported by inductive reasoning, right? It's always worked in the past, so it'll always work in the future. But the counterinductivist can say the exact same thing. It's never worked in the past. It's never worked in the past. Therefore, it will work in the future, <laughs> right? That's the counterinductivist parity, right? It says that if something works in the past, it's not going to work in the future. And if it hasn't worked in the past, then it will work in the future. Counterinductive reasoning has never worked, never, ever worked. And that means it's definitely going to work next time. The, the only way I can wrap my mind around this one is to think of the gambler's fallacy, which is sometimes mentioned uh, along with the counterinduction parody, which is the gambler who is on a long losing streak who thinks, I'm due. Right. And the more you point out, but look, you have lost like the last hundred poker matches in a row. Yes, I'm really, really due. Like it's really, really right. It'd be my turn now. So that's a similar idea. That's a similar yeah. idea. Technically different, right? Because there's two versions of the gambler's fallacy. That's one version, right? You lose, you lose, you lose, so you think you're due. And then there's the other version where you win, you win, you win, so you think you're on roll and you're going to win next time as well. The most general characterization of the gambler's fallacy is treating independent events as being uh, not independent. Although it's interesting that the two versions of the, the gambler's fallacy, then one is an inductive version of the gambler's fallacy, right? Being, oh, I've been winning all this time, therefore I'm going to win the next time too, right? That inductive reasoning, even though you're ignoring the fact that these are independent trials and you know that the base probability of winning is, is rather low, uh, and then there's the counterinductive version, which is where you treat these as being related, but you do counterinductive reasoning, right? I see. Yeah, right. So, so it's one version of the gambler's fallacy. Yeah, I guess it would be one, one version of the gambler's fallacy. Yeah, right. So this is the basic idea behind the counterinduction parity. was first proposed um, by Salmon, I believe, in 1950-something, but then was popularized by Brian Skirms in sort of textbook on logic and reasoning that Skirms put out in the 60s. And so Skirms cites Salmon, but then subsequently everyone cites Skirms' discussion uh, of this counterinduction parody. And the counterinduction parody is incredibly popular. You know, as you mentioned, you know, your your colleagues at CU Boulder, like, love to present this to their students and the students hate it. But, like, this shows that your colleagues were presenting this to their students, right? Multiple colleagues. This yeah. is not the sort of thing that comes up in an advanced epistemology course. You'll cover Hume's problem of induction in a lot of philosophy 101 classes. And this is a sort of go-to that professors are always going to, to bust out. It is the go-to 
um, response. And it's treated this way in the literature as well. Whenever there's discussion of uh, justifications of induction, people bring up the counter-induction parody and go, well, we're in trouble again. So this is one of those things like Anselm's ontological argument is like this. You give it to people and students are like, no, like, like even the theists are like, no way, that's a, that's a good way of reasoning. But then the trick is to say, okay, so what's wrong with it? Right. And that's where you come in. Right. So that's what I'm trying to do in my paper. I'm trying to explain why the counter-induction parody fails, why it's not a good parody argument. The paper is called Defusing the Counter-Induction Parody. It's in Philosophia. You should check it out. I'm going to explain what's in it now, but read it and then cite it. Thank you. So here's what I argue in the paper. It's a short paper. I say that it sounds like we can parody the inductivist position. It sounds like we can do that, but in fact, we can't. The counterinduction parody is going to uh, end up making some transparently false claims somewhere along the line in a specific sort of way. So in order to see why the, the parity fails, let's slow down a little bit on the inductive position, right? So the, the way the counterinduction parity is supposed to work is to say that we can justify counterinduction counterinductively. Counterinduction is justified by its failures in exactly the same way that we can justify induction inductively, where induction is justified by its successes. So how does this work, though? How does it work to say that induction is justified inductively? It's justified by its successes. There's lots of ways of making this precise. But what I propose in the paper is here's one way of making this precise. We can distinguish between three different things. The first thing is what I call the rule of induction. And the rule of induction just says to extend patterns from observed instances into unobserved instances. This is an imperative. It is not the sort of claim that can be true or false. It is just a rule that you can follow. It says reason in the following way. From premises that say that the world is a certain way, infer that the world will be a certain way in the future. It has the logical form of an imperative. It is neither true nor false. Now, there is a second thing the principle of induction. And the principle of induction is the thing that I've been repeating throughout this podcast, that Hume quote, um, which says that instances of which we have had no experience will resemble instances of which we have had experience in the course of nature continues always the same. I wanted to ask you, is that just your way of stating the uniformity of nature? Yes. Okay. Well, that's Hume's way of stating the uniformity of nature, and I'm borrowing from Hume. I mean, there's going to be additional complications here because more of the same is not a very good, very precise way of describing how our actual reasoning processes work. Suppose I'm trying to find out the contents of like a whole grain silo filled with beans and I uh -huh. reach in and I take a sample of one and it's a red bean. And I think, okay, following Matt's imperative, I'm going to assume that all of them in the silo are red. Uh-huh. That seems like it's following the rule, but it seems like that would be really bad reasoning because I have a very tiny sample. Right. You've got to add in additional provisos here. The way that I'm describing it, it is a very sort of high-level description and is not going to be appropriate in any actual reasoning process. We've got to bring in all this other information, all this other background information. I think Hume's right. We've got to loop this through a discussion of a causal regularity. So I think you need to, to bring causal explanation in at, at some level as well to make a good inductive inference. 
But there is still a general assumption, right? As Hume points out, even once you build in all this stuff, okay, it's got to be looped through a causal regularity. There's still a base assumption in here at some level that the past is a guide to the future, that what we've observed is a guide to what we have not yet observed, right? And exactly the way in which the past is a guide to the future, that's going to require much more elaboration, but at some level it is. And and that's really all that I'm, I'm trying to say with this, my discussion of the principle of induction, right? But, you know, just trying to, to isolate the particular issue that's raised by Hume's problem and not get deep into the weeds of, you know, all the intricacies that's involved, going to be involved in any given reasoning process. So back to the thread of the argument. We've got this rule, right, which says, infer that the future will be like the past. This is an imperative. It does not describe the world in any particular way. Then there is a principle, which is a empirical claim that describes the world. It says that the future will be like the past, that instances of which we have had no experience will be like instances of which we have had experience, right? This is an empirical description of the way the world is. Now, we have an imperative, which is simply a description of imperative form of a certain sort of process, and we have a description of the way the world is, but we're missing a third element. And what we're missing is justification, Right? Induction is supposed to be about justification. So we need to add in a bit to give us justification. So where normativity comes in is with the principle of successful confirmation. And a principle of successful confirmation says that if you are reasoning in accordance with some rule, and your reasoning in accordance with that rule makes successful predictions, generates successful predictions, then those successful predictions will confirm Caterus Paribus to some extent. It will confirm any of the principles that that rule presupposes. So the rule of induction presupposes the principle of induction because that rule of induction will tend to be reliable only if the principle of induction is true. So the rule of induction will tend to be reliable only if the principle of induction is true. The reasoning in accordance with the rule of inductions makes successful predictions. And so those successful predictions will confirm the principle of induction. And that's what we wanted. We wanted some sort of inductive support, support of some sort, for the principle of induction. That's what Hume asked for, and here's how I give it to him. So now let's look at the counter-induction parody. Let's parody all of this, right? So start off. The rule of induction. How can we parody the rule of induction? We parody the rule of induction by accepting the rule of counterinduction. Sorry, you don't accept it because it's not a view, but that this is the description, right? The rule to follow. And the rule of counterinduction says from premises that the past has a certain regularity, infer that the future will not have that regularity. And this matches up then with the principle of counterinduction, which says that the future will not resemble the past that instances of which we have had experience will not resemble the instances of which, sorry, the instances of which we have not had experience will not resemble the instances that we have had experience. And the course of nature does not continue always necessarily the same. That's the principle of counterinduction. So we've got a rule of counterinduction and our principle of counterinduction. 
Now we need the normativity. So what's our normative principle? We could go for successful prediction, but of course we can't go for a successful prediction. Successful prediction says that if reasoning in accordance with a rule makes successful predictions, then that will confirm any uh, principle that that rule presupposes. But reasoning in accordance with the rule of counterinduction does not generate successful predictions. It generates unsuccessful predictions. An unsuccessful prediction says that if you reason in accordance with a rule that makes unsuccessful predictions, then that will confirm any principle that that rule presupposes, right? So that's the parity of the successful prediction principle. And this, I want to say, is the problem. The counterinductive parity is committed to unsuccessful prediction. It's committed to this unsuccessful prediction principle because it can be committed to the successful prediction principle because counterinductive reasoning does not make successful predictions. But if we look at the principle of unsuccessful predictions, right, and this unsuccessful predictions principle, again, says that if reasoning in accordance with a rule makes unsuccessful predictions, then that confirms any principle that that rule presupposes, right? That is not a description of a rule in imperative form. That's not a descriptive claim about the way the world will be. This is an epistemic norm. So successful prediction and unsuccessful prediction are both epistemic norms. They're different epistemic norms. And what I want to say is that successful prediction is a better epistemic norm than unsuccessful prediction. How do we know this? Well, how do we know about any epistemic norms? Let's say this is an a priori matter. Is it an analytic a priori? Is it synthetic a priori? I think it's analytic because I don't like synthetic a priori, but my argument doesn't uh, rest on this. If you're one of those people who like synthetic a priori, then fine. We can know that successful predictions is true, and we can know that unsuccessful predictions is false a priori, because this is just how the epistemology of general normative principles works. Epistemic normative principles works. These are a priori. So we can know a priori that the unsuccessful prediction principle is false, and so we can know that the counterinduction parity fails. I said the reason why it looks like counterinduction parity is going to work is because there is some fuzziness in the way that it's described. It's described as saying that there's this idea of counterinduction. The counterinduction is that the future will be unlike the past. Right? But that's not all that counterinduction says. There's actually two different parts of it. One is to say that the future will be unlike the past. And the second is to say that there's this sort of justification, counterinductive justification, right? Say, we can justify the uh, principle of counterinduction counterinductively. But what is counterinductive justification? It's not just a restatement of the fact that the future will be unlike the past. It is, in fact, an epistemic norm, which states sufficient conditions for a certain sort of justification, right? Counterinductive justification. And I argue counterinductive justification is, is incoherent if it's if it's counterinductive, it's not justification. And this is clear if we think in terms of confirmation and disconfirmation. Successful predictions confirm. Unsuccessful predictions disconfirm. That's just the difference between confirmation and disconfirmation. Right? So once we keep in mind that the counterinductivist is dedicated not just to an empirical claim about the way the future will be, but to a substantive epistemic norm 
about what sorts of observations confirm what principles, then the problem with the counterinduction parity leaps out. They are committed to an incoherent principle, an incoherent epistemic normative principle, which is very easy to know a priori as false. Okay. That's interesting. I, I've got some criticisms, but I want to say at the outset that I think the basic move works. What I'd be fussing about is like the exact formulation. I think something like this is successful. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would change some things I do in the exact formulation, but I, I think the, the basic idea is, is right. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the exact formulation. Yeah, so one little thing, this maybe not a big deal, but induction involves more than predictions of the future. Yes. So it also could involve like a historian, you know, coming up with evidence for hypotheses in the distant past that could never be confirmed by a future right. discovery or just something that's going on in the present. Like when I take a, a sample of beans out of a, a silo or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I should have mentioned this earlier, right? I've been bouncing back and forth between two different ways of describing induction and counterinduction, right? One is to say that you infer that the future will be like the past. And the other one is to say that you infer that instances of which we have had no experience will be like instances of which we have had experience. That second formulation, the instances of which we have had no experience will be like instances of which we have had experience. That's the more precise formulation, right? It's not about future and past. It's about observed versus unobserved. We frequently talk in terms of future and past because that is, it's a much more easy and you know, simple way to talk, to talk about future and past than to do the big cumbersome phrase of instances of which we have had no experience being resembling instances of which we have had experience. But that's just, it's it's the paradigm example of instances of which we have had no experience is the future. And the paradigm example of instances of which we have had experience is the past. But fundamentally, the problem concerns how do we generalize beyond the scope of our own experiences, right? There are some things that we know because we've experienced them, right? But there's much in the world, which is outside of the immediate scope of our experiences. And we think that we can know some things about it. So the question is how. Here's the thing that I really want to debate about. So Bill McCurdy, may he rest in peace, my teacher, really convinced me of Peirce's view on, on induction here. Okay. And so Peirce insisted that induction, abduction, and deduction, they all have to be understood in a purely formal way, which means that the logic does not imply anything material. So there shouldn't be any premises about the uniformity of nature in the way we formulate induction. And that seems right independently for this reason, which is induction could tell us that nature isn't uniform. Induction could tell us that there are limits to how uniform nature is. So it's conceivable that Galileo could, you know, I, he didn't actually do this, I don't think, but allegedly he dropped those, you know, two balls at the, right. the Tower of Pisa. Yeah. I don't think it was leaning at that time. It would have been awkward, <laughs> but it didn't really happen anyway. So it doesn't matter. So it's conceivable that he drops the two balls and, and it's a different result every time. And he's controlled for all the variables he can think to control for. And maybe it, at some point it would be reasonable for him to conclude, 
well, maybe there just isn't a regularity here. Maybe there's some randomness in the universe. And that would be a discovery. It would be a discovery that nature wasn't as uniform as he expected it to be. And so we can still learn something about the world when it's not uniform. We can learn that it isn't uniform. That's one of the things that leads me to believe that the whole way of formulating this that relies on the uniformity of nature is really a mistake, right? As long as, you know, you take a sample of something that's a representative sample, you're going to learn something about that which you took the sample from. But Spencer, nature is uniform. It is uniform, sure. But that's not why induction works. Induction works because the principle of induction has been well confirmed. I think that gets it backwards. My view is that it doesn't. (laughs) Okay. Maybe this is another way of getting at this issue. Because I had this thought. So if if we apply the the counterinduction principle, it's massively disconfirmed. Yes. Okay. Agreed. But don't you have to say, like, in this universe, like, aren't there possible universes where it would be massively confirmed? This gets complicated. I'll say yes for the sake of argument, but this gets complicated. It is complicated because, yeah, you're trying to imagine what it would be like to be in that world. It's, It's crazy. I mean, this is something that Popper talked about, right? Popper thought that the idea of this principle of induction, the the uniformity of nature, he said that this is an article of of metaphysical faith. And as an article of metaphysical faith, it's not the sort of thing which can be confirmed or disconfirmed, right? Popper would say that no matter what sort of weird, scattered observations Galileo would have uh, come up with in doing his experiments, this would not have shown that the principle of the uniformity of nature is false because that is an article of metaphysical faith. Instead, that would show that our theories about what the uniformities are, are false. Our scientific theories always presuppose the uniformity of nature. When we're doing science, what we're doing is we're trying to come up with theories which are uniform and which do a good job of explaining the regularities that we observe. There's much that's uniform in nature, but much that is not uniform in nature. So we try to come up with theories that do a good job of explaining the regularities, which are qualified in the right sort of way so that they're exceptionless and they they don't get falsified. Now, over time, as has always happened in the history of science, eventually the theory does get falsified. It doesn't work anymore. It stops working. We're not able to make the theory fit to the data. That's when we need a new theory. Right. And the new theory is then formulated to come up with the better explanation of the data. There's lots of disagreements between Kuhn and Popper, but they both agree on this same basic point. Right. Which is that you you try the theory until it stops working. And then once it stops working, it's falsified and you bring in a new theory that does a better job of explaining the regularities. So this process that characterizes scientific investigation. This is one that always assumes that at some level we're going to come up with a theory. And it's a process that makes this assumption against the background of constant disconfirmation. This is one of the points that Kuhn makes in response to, to Popper. Popper's got this sort of austere thing where the second we've got one instance that steps out of line, we've got to throw out the theory and it's done. Kuhn's response in part, is to say, well, the theory never perfectly fits the data. We've always got to be doing various tweaks of different kinds, 
both to our theory and to our experimental techniques to get better data. The history of science is the history of constant disconfirmation. And yet we always come up with a new theory and that new theory is always universal. It's always invariant with respect to time and space. It always assumes the principle of the uniformity of nature, right? This is just the scientific method. This is just how it works. So to go back to your example of Galileo, you know, dropping the balls off the, the tower, if it's a different result every time, well, that would tell you that that would falsify the theory of terrestrial gravitation that Galileo was working with. But that wouldn't falsify the principle of the uniformity of nature. That would just mean that we would need to come up with a different first order theory about terrestrial gravitation, which would explain all the instances. And if you're worrying that, well, what if we could never come up with a theory that perfectly explains all of the data that we have? Spencer, I've got bad news for you. That's the actual world. We just keep on working at it. And we try to get closer. I, I'm not persuaded. I think this gets things backwards. So it's true that scientists look for uniform explanations of things. But I don't think this is a presupposition. I think that's because in the actual world, we've had tremendous success at finding you know, theories that could subsume older theories and unify different domains of knowledge. And so we hope that there are ways to keep this going and to keep advancing things. But I don't think it's a presupposition. I think yeah, the world might have turned out not to be so uniform, but you could learn about how disunified the world was, and that would still be learning something. Could life have evolved in this fundamentally disunified world that you are imagining? Depends on how disunified. Let's assume that life could not have evolved in a fundamentally disunified world. In that case we would be able to justify this presupposition of scientific reasoning by the anthropic principle, right? There are worlds out there which are fundamentally chaotic. Right? Let's call these chaotic worlds. Okay. There are chaotic worlds, but life can't exist in a chaotic world. So our world is not chaotic. That justifies our presupposing a principle of the uniformity of nature. Okay. So maybe your view then is that the world is mildly chaotic, right? There are some uniformities, but some things are fundamentally indeterministic, right? At least we're not presupposing that when we're doing experiments. There's the theorizing part of science, and then there's the actual experimentation, collecting data part. That's the part that's like the most inductive. And that tells us that the world is uniform, in my view. It doesn't presuppose it. Well, I mean, there's this huge topic in philosophy of science, but the consensus sort of view in philosophy of science is that there's no hard and fast divide between theoretical work and uh, experimental work, right? The experiments are done in accordance with theories, and then the theories will then inform what experiments need to be done to further test the theories and also how to build the equipment, which will allow us to test the theories. So it doesn't make sense to say that there's a hard and fast division no. of labor between, between theory and experiment. It doesn't have to be hard and fast. I, I just wanted to point out, but that doesn't mean that experiments presuppose the uniformity of nature. It could just give us the evidence that 
the the universe is uniform, and that's why we make theories that are like that. So again, I'm just going to push back on that conception. I think that life could not exist in a chaotic world. I think that that anthropic justification that I just gave is is in fact a good one, and so that justifies the presupposition in that way. I think it's also maybe interesting to think about quantum mechanics here. Which I know you're fond of doing. I do like quantum mechanics. I think quantum mechanics is fascinating. So let's assume, let's assume the false for a second and assume the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. This is the most popular indeterministic interpretation of quantum mechanics. When we're not observing, they can only describe reality by the wave function, and the wave function is indeterministic. But when we make an observation, we do observe something that is determinate. All of our observations are determinate. So this corresponds to a collapse of the wave function at the point of measurement. So people like Einstein really hate the Copenhagen interpretation because they don't like this fundamental indeterminacy that enters into the universe, right? The famous God does not play dice uh, line from Einstein. Einstein is assuming a very strong conception of the principle of uniformity of nature. But let's assume that Einstein was wrong and that Niels Bohr, his opponent on this, was correct and that the Copenhagen interpretation is correct. And so there is some fundamental chaos built into the universe at the quantum level. From a set of initial conditions with you know, a photon, there's no telling where it's going to end up. How would a scientist approach this? Well, we're assuming that there are some regularities, and then there's also some chaos, right? What the scientist does is figure out all those things that are determinate and which truly are uniform. And this would then isolate the rest of things which are chaotic. And then, although we can't make exact predictions within the chaotic area, right? The the past is no definite guide to the future in this way. We can at least sort of quantify and give the shape of the chaos, which is what the wave function does. It describes the probability distribution, which is stable. So... If we're talking about a world which is partly uniform and partly chaotic and where life could exist in such a universe, then scientific practice will get to work identifying those uniformities and then find where the uniformities failed and then, you know, do their best to sort of like put that chaos in a box, right? and at least try to talk about the, the uniformity of the, the disuniformity, right? which is pretty much exactly what goes on with quantum mechanics, right? particularly on the Copenhagen interpretation. Right? There are some things that we think work more or less deterministically, and we have deterministic theories for those. When we get into the quantum mechanics, we put that in a box, and that's the deterministic box, and then we just sort of describe around it, even though you, know, you can't tell where the, the photon is going to end up at any given point. We can at least describe the wave function, and that's enough to go on through the rest of our scientific practice. So in that way, science doesn't assume determinism, right? But that's fine. What you would need to be talking about is a much deeper sort of indeterminism, a much deeper sort of chaos, right? Where it's like the the wave function stops working tomorrow, the Schrodinger wave function stops working tomorrow. But if the wave function stops working tomorrow, that's a principle that governs how atomic interactions happen. Every molecule in your body works the way that it does because of the fundamental quantum mechanical principles. And if that changed tomorrow, your body would disintegrate. A really good quote, I've got to say, Pauli, I forget his first name, the physicist. He had a great quote where he said, 
do not bring together what God has rent asunder. <laughs> we, this point being, like, don't seek greater unity than is there. Right. Right. Yeah. Paul is a great one for quotes. He's also the one that gave us not even false. That's not even false. Yeah, that's a Paul. Right. Okay. But the Yogi Berra of, of physics. Yeah, the Yogi Berra of physics. I'm pretty sure that's Paul. And now I got that wrong and someone's going to fact check me. I'm going to look like an idiot, but I'm pretty sure that was Paul. I'm pretty sure that was Paul. But, but yeah, right. So let's assume quantum indeterminacy. And what we can say is there are some things that are uniform and scientific practice presupposes uniformity, but it's, it's flexible enough to deal with whatever lack of uniformity it can encounter. And the uniformities that it finds it is able to categorize and describe. And then the systematic disuniformities it's able to also describe in probabilistic or you know more chaotic terms the real worry is if there's an even more fundamental chaos if there's an even more fundamental level of determinacy where you know tomorrow black becomes white up becomes down right nature starts working in a different way tomorrow but if that would happen we would all just die right so the evolution of life depends on at least a certain degree of stability within a sufficiently large region of space-time. So I agree with everything you're saying. I think we might be talking past each other. Maybe. A bit. So I agree that it's good to, to reason from the existence of life to there must be some uniformity of nature because otherwise we couldn't be here reasoning about it. I think that's right. And I think it's also true that the practice of science requires there to be a certain amount of uniformity. Even if there is some chaos, we can put caution tape around it and point, you know, danger over there. Right. Right. I think that's all right. I just, I object to saying that it enters at the level of the logic of induction. I think that's more basic. We also couldn't do deduction and mathematics if the universe was too chaotic for humans to exist and mathematicians to exist. But I don't want to say that deduction depends on the uniformity of nature. I want to say that it's at the wrong level of explanation or something. Well, I mean, yes, but that's because deduction is different, right? I'm with you on this, right? Deduction is about relations between ideas such that it would be a contradiction to think that it's, it's false. But I, I think I've got all the, the pieces that I need here right? How does induction work? How is it justified? These are different questions, how it works and how it's justified, but we can give similar sorts of answers, right? It works the way I've described and it is justified in the manner I've described. We do presume that there is regularity in nature, right? Of course, it's complicated what those regularities are and science helps us out with that. You know, even if we're not scientists, experience gives us some texture of what is uniform and regular and, and what's variable. And then we adopt more specific principles about what's going to be regular and uniform. And as those more specific principles make successful predictions, that gives us confirmation. Now, you point out that this sort of reasoning presupposes the uniformity of nature. Indeed, it does. But that's a fine assumption, because if nature were not uniform, then life couldn't exist. Life does exist. So that justifies that presupposition. So I've got a, a first-order epistemic account. This would be a reliable way of reasoning in general, given the metaphysical structure of the universe. And I don't think I need to provide any more. I think I'm saying you could provide less. I, I think you're... Ah, 
I think you could make your argument work without assuming the uniformity of nature. That's why I said I think that this is like friendly criticism. I don't think it, I'm undermining your strategy at all. Ah, okay. Well, I misunderstood the nature of the objection. Spencer, tell me how I could do more with less. I guess my thought would be if induction does not depend on the uniformity of nature, it could still get things right if you think of induction as an iterated kind of logic. So deduction is monotonic, I think is the word for it, where a complete argument is just like a syllogism or something like that. Whereas induction is supposed to be repeatedly applied and you get closer and closer to the truth. And if you take it to the limit, if you have a sample size of 100%, it's just as good as a deduction because you've got all the evidence. You know exactly what to infer at that point. And so the thought would be, if you just keep repeating the induction, eventually you're going to correct for the mistakes. And I think you can do that and reveal chaos in the universe and not have to presuppose anything about the uniformity of nature. But you can still go ahead and appeal to your epistemic principle and it would still do well and counterinduction would still do poorly. Okay. So basically what I'm saying is if the first view of induction is right and it doesn't depend on uniformity of nature, induction is still going to get confirmed. And so you can still appeal to your epistemic principle and it's going to come out the way you say it does. So your response works on this view of induction too. Sure. I'm glad that I don't need to get into the metaphysics to make this work. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just say thank you. I think that there is an interesting question here. The extent to which this sort of move that I'm talking about does depend on an assumption of the uniformity of nature. I take your point that it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't depend on that assumption, right? Right. Of course, of course. This is the whole point, right? This is the whole point, right? It presupposes the uniformity of nature. The reasoning does presuppose the uniformity of nature. But that's fine because the principle which is presupposed, right, this principle of the uniformity of nature, is subsequently confirmed. If nature were less uniform, then so long as we did a good enough job of reasoning in ways that adequately describe the ways in which it's uniform and the ways in which it's not uniform, then that sort of reasoning will lead to successful predictions and thereby be confirmed. So you're you're exactly right. And and I do want to emphasize this point that, that you made in passing, because it's something that I like to talk about too, and I think is uh, extraordinarily important, which is the fact that it's an iterative process where principles work over time and thereby become confirmed. And if they don't work, they become disconfirmed. I think this is the fundamental engine of epistemology. I, I don't like talk of justification or reliability. I like talk of confirmation and disconfirmation. And sure, we can make sense of justification and reliability, maybe, but fundamentally, this is all about confirmation and disconfirmation. Because if we have a sort of epistemic engine which strengthens belief in principles that lead to successful predictions and weakens belief in principles that lead to unsuccessful predictions, then over time, you're going to converge. And that is, I think, a, a vitally important part of understanding how our minds work. I think our minds are structured in, in that sort of way to reinforce what makes successful predictions and to 
uh, weaken, what makes unsuccessful predictions. And this is how fundamentally our minds can come to have an accurate model of the way the world works. Of course, one implication of that is that if there is some principle about the way things are in the world, which does not facilitate successful predictions, it's going to be impossible for us to come to know it because it's going to be impossible for a principle like that to be confirmed. And that's why we have no moral knowledge. And that's our next podcast. Okay. Yep. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna take a rain check on that one. I want to do what, one more pass at the uniformity of nature just to get clear on one thing. Because I think like that, if you take a representative sample from something, it's likely to tell you about the broader population, whatever it is you're talking about. By definition of representative sample. Sure, sure. But you could spell that out in various ways, you know. So that I think is purely formal, but I, I do wonder then maybe this whole issue about the uniformity of nature is understood in like a way that's trivial. Like is any kind of thing we would discover, like suppose that I wasn't thinking about things at the subatomic level being funky more than they are. I was thinking of something like Hume's work on miracles, like many, many reports of miraculous events happening. Right. Suppose it was the case that every so often tigers would just like materialize. This is something William Lane Craig says in uh-huh. trying to motivate the Kalam argument is, you know, things don't just begin. You can't, don't just have tigers materializing. Well, let's suppose that you did. Let's suppose you had tigers materializing every so often. And suppose we had scientists observing like, oh, there are miracles that happen. And, you know, there's tigers that just materialize for no apparent reason. Would that just be the uniformity of that world? Would that just amount to a kind of uniformity of nature? Because if so, it it almost trivializes the whole notion of uniformity of nature. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about William Lane Craig. Tigers don't just materialize out of nowhere, therefore God exists. But if tigers did materialize out of nowhere, well, that that's a miracle. Okay. Therefore God exists. I'm not a huge fan of Craig's, but that <laughs> is a little uncharitable. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Fair enough. I'm one of those atheist types. But, but yeah, it's a question of what a discontinuity in nature would have to be. And the larger sort of problem is like if there is a break point, right? So we've been talking about uh, a lack of uniformity in nature. And I've sort of steered you there for a reason to be like, you know, with tigers materializing, right? Like if, if things were different somehow, but the larger concern is if there's a break, right? If starting tomorrow, things work differently. So there's a local uniformity, right? There's a local uniformity, but that only exists within a certain region of space-time. Outside that region of space-time, there's just a break, and then there's a radical discontinuity. And that could be spatial, too. That could be you take your spaceship so far, and suddenly gravity doesn't work the same or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, this is mostly uh, discussed as a temporal sort of thing. Tomorrow, gravity stops working, right? And this is the sort of thing that humans worried about, right? Why should we not think that tomorrow gravity will stop working? We can imagine that tomorrow gravity stops working. And this gets into the Gru paradox. Goodman is a different problem and a bigger problem for me. 
My goal in the paper is relatively modest. I want to say that I can solve the counterinduction parity. And the way that I solve the counterinduction parity is by attacking one of the key ideas of the counterinduction parity. It's this idea that things can be justified counterinductively, that a theory can be confirmed by its failures. That's part of the counterinduction parity. That's an essential part of the counterinduction parity. And it's crazy. It's wrong. Goodman's got a different concern. Goodman is not saying that our theory can be confirmed by its failures. It's saying that a theory that posits a discontinuity at some point in the future has, up until this point, been confirmed by its successes, and in fact has been confirmed just as well by its successes as a theory that does not posit a discontinuity in the future. So I don't think I have the resources here, at least, to answer Goodman, but I do have the resources to answer the counterinduction parity. Group paradox is, is a bit harder because with the, the group paradox, right, we could say that there's a principle that's been making successful predictions. But here's another principle that makes successful predictions, one that says that all emeralds are green up until tomorrow, at which point all emeralds are blue. Yeah. Right. And that makes just as many successful predictions as the principle that says that all emeralds are green. So why isn't the group principle just as well confirmed? That's sort of the real problem. And I think that at a certain level to solve the group paradox, you do need to presuppose at some level a principle of uniformity of nature. Now, this is hard for Goodman because Goodman can't allow that. Goodman can't allow an assumption of the uniformity of nature because Goodman's a positivist type, right? He's not a realist. For Goodman to understand support by evidence, this is purely a logical and semantic relation. So the Gru language is just as internally consistent as the Green language. So Gru principles are just as well supported as the Green principles, right? But if you're a realist, then you can say that, no, Green is an actual property in the world, right? Okay. Fine. You're realist. Greed's a real property in the world. Gru isn't. But couldn't we say that maybe we live in a Gru property world where everything that is green will turn blue tomorrow? And that's the fundamental discontinuity. And then yeah, the, the reasoning presupposes that that's not the case. So at that level, I think that, yeah, there is a, a presupposition here of a lack of a fundamental metaphysical discontinuity. I guess I would say that we've taken a sample of the world. It's the, the local sample that we have. It's like taking a, a few beans out of a massive silo. It could be that you've picked out the only five beans out of the whole silo that are red, but that seems pretty unlikely. And so I think we're allowed to say that, well, we haven't observed any properties like that. We haven't observed any properties like that. And we shouldn't expect that Gru is going to be the first one we, we find or something. The deep version of the Gru problem is that maybe somehow all of human experience is a non-representative sample. Yeah. Well, that's possible. But why is it likely? I mean, it's possible that I could reach into the silo and pull out like the only white being out of the whole silo. Well, I mean, sure, it's possible, Right. But you want to say it's, it's possible, but unlikely. In what yeah. sense do you mean it's unlikely? Well, some sort of epistemic sense, right? Yeah. Right? And so then we're back into the question of the epistemology here, right? What is it that makes it the case that 
the thought that we are in an unrepresentative sample has a, a low probability or something. And what I would say is, if you think that we're in an unrepresentative sample, the way that you would have to reason is not going to generate many successful predictions, and it's generated a lot of unsuccessful predictions, right? So, so fundamentally, it comes back to, to the epistemology. And I think that my account gives a good justification of inductive reasoning. Again, this is not certain, right? We can't turn inductive reasoning into deductive reasoning. The fact that we can confirm the principle of induction doesn't mean that we're 100% certain in the principle of induction. It doesn't mean that we can conclusively rule out the possibility that we're in an unrepresentative sample, right? The point is simply that the nature of uh, our mental states and the nature of confirmation of those mental states is such that successful predictions confirm we do presume the uh, regularity of nature. We do presume that there's no discontinuity. That has served us well in the past. So that there is no discontinuity is well confirmed. And there might be a discontinuity in the future, but we've got no reason to think that there is. Yeah, so this makes me think of Russell's chicken example. Right. Every day the chicken gets feed when the farmer comes, and then one day the farmer comes with an ax. I've always thought, well, that's not a deep philosophical epistemic problem. It's just a fact that this chicken has not a lot of evidence. And yeah. that could be their situation. I don't think that that is deeply unsettling. Yeah, it's not that deeply unsettling. And I think we can say more about the um, Russell's chicken example, because even though Russell's chicken is surprised by its beheading, um, Briefly surprised. Uh, briefly surprised by its beheading. That's not a fundamental discontinuity in nature. There is a larger continuity, which the chicken is not appreciating, but that is still more general uniformity in nature, right? The chicken's just doing induction on the wrong pattern, right? So hopefully more and better scientific theorizing will give us a better and deeper appreciation of true regularities in nature, which give rise to all other regularities in nature. And we'll come to appreciate that as we come to appreciate all these things by patterns of successful prediction. So it looks like if your kind of induction is a response to Hume, it will work against Goodman. At least in part, at least in part. Right. And in this way, I guess I do kind of go back to, to Hume, Right. Yeah, um, it's this, very similar to what he says. It's, about, it's an innate habit yeah. of reasoning, Yeah, right? Habit is the great guide to life. Custom is the great guide to, to human existence. We just kind of keep on keeping on like we've been doing. I would just add to Hume, it's true that we assume that the future will be like the past on the basis of our habit, but that habit does become confirmed over time. And the sort of reasoning that provides that confirmation is circular in a way, but it's the okay kind of rule circularity uh, that comes from successful confirmation, and that's not enough. All right. Well, I don't have anything further to add. So we can just conclude by saying, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's good to have you, and it's going to be good to have you the next time as well. 